How do we do that? So, yes, great. I'm supposed to live for heaven. What is that supposed to look like? Is that, does that look like becoming a monk? Does that look like separating myself from society? What does it look like to live for heaven in this world while we're here? And I think Jeremiah 29 gives us the principles and how to do that. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. And I want us to think through this topic, living as sojourners and strangers. Lessons from Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. And my main point this morning is this. We must learn how to live faithfully in a foreign land. This world is not our home. It never has been, but it's especially not our home now. And so, therefore, we need to learn how to be faithful. Before we learn how to live faithful, real quick, though, I want us to have an example of how not to live in a foreign land in which you're really uncomfortable. So if you find yourself uh, in a place that is not your home, not really your normal experience, okay, here's what's not to do. So three lessons from President Biden's inauguration a couple weeks ago, okay? So not getting any political camps here. I'm just making some jokes, all right? So calm down before I get there. So here's lesson number one. First, if you're nervous about what to wear in a foreign occasion, don't show up dressed like you're a part of the Hunger Games. Lady Gaga. Number two, don't take the advice of just being yourself so literally. In other words, if you're a country boy, it's probably not best to show up in boots to a black tie affair, even if you've made a couple million dollars singing about it. Garth Brooks. I thought this was so much funnier at Enterprise. Maybe Jake did get all the joke genes, okay? All right, number three. And y'all are going to laugh at this. you got to. If you have social media, at least you're going to laugh at this, which I hope most of you do. Uh, or maybe, maybe I hope most of you don't. Anyway, number three, last but certainly not least, if you're still upset about not being the one inaugurated and upset about having to sit in the cold and watch someone else get sworn in, don't sit in the corner with your fuzzy mittens on and pout about it. All right, there we go. Got that one. Good. All right, so uh, we've seen what not to do. Now let's dig in and let's see what to do. So uh, Jeremiah 29, lesson number one. Don't turn to idols when you're afraid. Don't turn to idols when you're afraid. Look at verses one through three. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So here's the context of what the next 11 verses are going to be. But let's get some context into what's going on right here. So Israel is being taken off into exile. So remember the story of Joseph and then Joshua and them coming into the promised land, right? And then they established kings and built the temple. And God promised them at the end of Deuteronomy that if they would be faithful to keep their side of the covenant, that God would keep them in the land and he would bless them. And he would give them all the children that they wanted. He would give them the food and the drink that they wanted. He would give them the prosperity and the righteous reign that they wanted in peace. And they would be able to have authority over their enemies. 
But if they did not keep their side of the covenant, then they would lose all of that. And so what happened? Well, they began to fear even in the wilderness before they got there, didn't they? God, are you going to feed us? We're in the wilderness and we're starving. Wouldn't it have been better to go back to Egypt? We had plenty to eat there. Sure, they made us worship false gods. Sure, we were slaves. But yet we knew where our meals were coming from. So what they did was they, when they feared, they did not trust the God that had brought them out of slavery. I mean, think about this. They, he just saved them with ten plagues and walked them through the Red Sea. Yet they were so afraid that he would not continue to provide that they were willing to go back to Egypt. And then they get into the promised land and they're thinking, look, what's going to happen if God doesn't bless us with children? We're in the old covenant, right? The covenant is transferred through physical reproduction, not through evangelism like it is in the new covenant. What if we don't have children? And we live in an agrarian culture. If we don't have children, then we're not going to be able to farm. If, we don't, if we're not able to farm, then we're not going to be able to survive. What if God doesn't give us children? But you know what? That God over there, that Canaanite God, says if we'll just come sacrifice one of our children to him, then he'll bless us with more and more and more and more. And so they're afraid, and so they go sacrifice their child on an altar. So when you read the Old Testament and you read of worshiping Baal and worshiping the Asherah poles, worshiping the Canaanite gods, these are the kind of things they're doing. They're going to a temple and sleeping with prostitutes because that's what that worship looked like in hope that God would continue, that God would continue to bless them with fertility and physical blessings. They would go lay their food down like I have seen in a Hindu temple before. Go lay their food down at this carved image, hoping that that carved image would continue to bless their crops. And the reason that they did it was because they were afraid that God would not be faithful to his promises. And so they had to go find something else that they thought that would. Guys, we don't have temple prostitution. We don't have carved images. But the temptation is true for every single individual. Are you going to trust that God will provide... Or are you going to run to idols and fear that he won't? And that fear, it could be political promises. It could be food. It could be children. It could be economic. Whatever the case may be. But we are prone to do the same thing. And so when you're afraid, do not turn to idols. You see, fear is a tool. Fear either drives you away from God to trust in something else, or it drives you towards God to take refuge in Him. And to then let Him work in your heart to be bold for Him. What are we going to do? We're going to turn to idols or we're going to trust the Lord? Number two, lesson number two we see here. Enjoy God's good blessings while not worshiping them. So turning from idols doesn't mean we don't get to enjoy God's good blessings in this life. Look at verse 4. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. So in other words, 
When you're in exile, living for the future, not living for that land, that foreign land, knowing that God has something better for you to come, enjoy the goodness that God gives you there. So what does that look like for us, right? That, that means that enjoy food, like that juicy cheeseburger. Don't eat one every day because it will give you a heart attack, but eat it and enjoy it and recognize that that's God's good gift to you. When you see the face of a newborn child, look, we're, we live in a broken, crazy, chaotic, sinful world, but the glimpses of God's good creation are still there to be enjoyed and to be satisfied in and look to something greater. They point us to something greater. And so enjoy it. Be thankful for grandchildren. And enjoy those good gifts, but don't make them idols. So don't turn to idols when you're afraid. Enjoy the good gifts that God gives you, but then don't turn those things into idols either. Use them for worship. So he doesn't tell them in Babylon, look, there's some, there's some good things in Babylon. Y'all don't need to touch any of those things because they're all bad. No, no, no. He says, recognize what is good and what can be redeemed. Enjoy those things. Turn from the bad things. Enjoy the good things and don't make the good things idols. And so if this world is our Egypt, if this world is our Babylon, then there's principles there for all of us in how we are to live our lives. Lesson three. Though you may lose your investment, still invest in the future. Though you may lose your investment, still invest in the future and let God determine the outcome. Let's read this passage again, the same verses, four through six. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. I don't know about y'all, but I'm prone in the last year. I'm I'm just going to preach in my heart right here, okay? So in the last year, all the unrest that we've seen, COVID, all this craziness, prone, prone to be afraid at times. And then the news, regardless of which channel you watch on the aisle, they want to scare you. It's their job to scare you because fear drives up ratings. So we live in a world that's fearful and wants us to fear and be afraid. And so we could draw into that fear and be so passive that we're like, oh, man, this is going to be horrible. Future, we're we're living in Babylon now. It's going to be horrible. Let's just kind of isolate ourselves. Let's just do my thing. I ain't worried about nobody else. I'm just taking care of me. Is that what God told them to do in this foreign land? What did he tell them to do? Invest. Invest. Build houses. Plant gardens. Get married. Give your sons and daughters in marriage. Don't be so overwhelmed by the moment. Well, I, I mean, Christians have never had to experience this before. No, not in America. But the Christians have had to experience this before. Don't be so overwhelmed by the moment that we become shell-shocked. It's like, like, a, like a soldier that goes into war and that grenade 
goes off right there next to him for the first time. That bullet flies by his head for the first time, and he gets wide-eyed, and he freezes, and he doesn't know what to do. He gets shell-shocked. We can do the same thing in our cultural moment. Oh, my goodness, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. You think they they weren't overwhelmed when Babylon stormed their city, burned down their wall, destroyed their temple... Dragged people off into slavery and killed a whole lot of them. You don't think they were scared? They were afraid. What do we do? We shell shock? No. God told them, look, I've got this. Calm down. It might be bad for a while, but continue to work and serve. Trust me. Invest in the future. Now, invest wisely. Don't be dumb. Read Proverbs. But continue to work hard and invest. I, uh, I'm, I'm coaching, or was coaching, five and six year old basketball. Um, I, I see myself as the greatest five and year, six year old basketball coach there's ever been. Um, other than the fact that I didn't do very well, <laughs> I don't think. But, uh, but we, we were undefeated, and we were about to play the other team that was really good in the league. All right. And uh, so we're going in, and I'm like, all right, guys, watch out for this, watch out for that, don't do this, don't do that. And uh, and what should I have done with five- and six-year-olds? You know what I should have said? Little Johnny, go have fun. That's what I should have said, right? Uh, but I, I overwhelmed them in the moment. They were so overwhelmed, they didn't do well to begin with because they were so shell-shocked. And I think that's how we can be if we do not take guard against it. We've got to invest in the future. So God showed them that true change is a long-term investment. That true change happens bottom-up, not top-down. And it happens long and slow and hard and not quick. And so that means if we want to see a great move of God, revival happens when God does His thing on His own, okay? Our job is to plow, water, Pray, plod, hope that God will do something. But our job is to just grind it out. True change happens in the long term. If we're looking for a quick fix in our culture or in our personal lives, we will be let down. We must invest for the long term. And investing in the long term means discipling your children, investing in your local community, serving in your church, Building houses, planting gardens, asking God to bring about great things. Lesson four, and this is a hard one, love the foreign land you're living in. Love the foreign land you're living in, even if it's against you. Work for its welfare. Look at the next verse here. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, love your enemies. I realize that Nebuchadnezzar is going to build a statue of himself and tell you to bow down to it. And if you don't, he's going to throw you in a fiery furnace. I recognize that that's not fair and just. Yet, Love him. Seek the welfare 
of that city. In it you will find your welfare. In the same way, dear Christian, I recognize that the world is against you. So does God. And what does he say? Love your enemy as yourself. Serve him. Point him to Christ. And do you know why? Because you and I were God's enemies. We were God's enemies because of what we had done against him. Our sin. Not because of what he did. He made us perfect. We sinned. And in so doing, we became his enemies. And in his love and in his grace and his mercy, he sent his own son to die on the cross for the sins of his enemies. That they might be forgiven, anyone who trusts in him, and be adopted into his family. God loved his enemies. Because God loved me. And he tells us to do the same The city that you live in is against you. Love it. Love it. Serve it. Seek the welfare of it. And in so doing, you will find your welfare. Now, this was a promise for them at that time. And it's a general promise for us. But it doesn't mean that we're promised automatic prosperity if we serve those who are against us. That's clear. And that leads us to the next lesson, number five. Don't let preachers tickle your ears by promising you will receive prosperity in the short term. Don't let preachers tickle your ears and tell you everything's going to go back to normal. In your personal life or in our cultural life. Look at the next verse here. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So what we see here are false prophets raised up in Israel. Even in exile, they had false prophets. All the way back to the the inauguration of Israel as a nation, there were false prophets. God gave them instructions for how to deal with false prophets in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And so it's not surprising. It's surprising in some ways they're still there in exile. But what's going on here? Well, we don't really know exactly what their message is, but based upon the context, I think we can assume a few things. So you see here, it says, when 70 years are completed. So in other words, don't listen to my prophet, to the false prophets. Listen to my true prophets when 70 years are completed. So what is most likely the message of these false prophets? The message is most likely, don't worry, it's not going to last long. Don't worry, it's going to be a year or two. Everything's going to be fine. You're going to go right back to your home. You're going to enjoy the, all the prosperity and the blessings that you had before. And then you've got these other prophets that come along. And these are the true prophets of God. And they tell the people, yeah, it's going to be 70 hard years. But when it's completed, I'll bring you back to the land. 70 years. So I just want to put, you, put yourself in their shoes, okay? Put yourself in their shoes. You have, on one hand, a prophet that says, oh, it's not going to be long. You're going, you're going to go right back. You're going to enjoy your house again. You're going to enjoy your material blessings again. You're going to enjoy playing with your children and grandchildren again. 
Everything that you invested in your whole life is still going to be there. It's okay. It's a year or two. And then imagine yourself as a 50, 60, 70 year old hearing this message. It's a year or two. And then the other prophet comes, and he's the true prophet of God, and he says, It's going to be 70 hard years, and you're going to die in Babylon. But God is still good. And His promises are still true. And He will be good even in death. Let me ask yourself, which one are you going to be more prone to to listen to and believe? Today, when you hear a preacher say, trust in the Lord and He'll just make all things right superficially. Are you prone to listen to that preacher? Are you prone to listen to a preacher that says, if you believe in Jesus, then all your wildest dreams will come true. You'll never be persecuted. You'll never lose money. You'll never lose health. You'll be wealthy. All your relationships will be mended like they should be. Just name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. Believe in this Jesus. And all things will just go back to normal. Or are you prone to believe the preachers that say, Look, you can get wealthy. There's a lot of principles in the Proverbs about working hard and saving and investing, and that's good, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus didn't die for your prosperity in this life. So just because you believe in Jesus doesn't mean everything's going to be okay. But what it does mean is he's going to give you a wonderful eternal home where all your sins are paid for, and you can live with him forever in perfect peace and harmony. And he will be with you right now just like he was for Joseph through all the hard times and all the good times that you'll experience in a, in a wonderful yet fallen world. Which preacher are you prone to listen to? And I just want to say, Jesus died for our prosperity as a promise in the future. In the future. See, one day... If we believe in Jesus and follow him, though we die, we will live. In the same way that his body was dead and God breathed back into life that body and wove that flesh and those bones back together and he stood up and walked around, in the same way our bodies will experience the same thing. That's the promise of the gospel. And so that leads us to the last lesson we need to learn here, and that is trust that God does indeed have a bright future for you. A bright future for me, a wonderful plan to give us welfare. Look here at the last part of this passage. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is the greatest coffee mug verse in the history of the Bible, right? In fact, I don't think there's any other verse that looks better on shiplap than Jeremiah 
with a little burlap around the top and bottom, right? <clears throat> Jeremiah 29, 11 is true. Because every single word of the Bible is true. So I'm not mocking it. But it's true in its context. And the context of this is for Israel in 586 B.C. And that is that God is promising them that they're going to take them into exile for 70 years in slavery. And it's going to be hard, and he's going to bring them back to the land after 70 years, and they're going to rebuild the temple, and things are not going to be near as well as they used to be, but they're still going to be good again. And he's promising them that, that there's still a welfare. He's, still, he's not going to give up on them. Babylon is not going to utterly erase them off the face of the earth. His promises to Adam and Eve and Isaac and Jacob and Abraham are still true. And he's not going to let them come undone. And so they're not going to all die in Babylon. They're going to come back and the Messiah one day is still going to come through them. And God's going to make sure it happens. And he's still got a glorious future plan for them. A promise of welfare and prosperity and that happens for them but even when they come back when you read in Ezra and Nehemiah they are crying because it's nothing compared to what it used to be and they're still longing for something greater in the future and you know why because Jesus was what they needed and the promise was still for the future that the Messiah would come and he would crush the head of the snake that put them under this curse. And Adam and Eve to begin with, he would fulfill the promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 through 15. That through him all the nations would be blessed. And that would come through the one promised to Judah who would reign on his throne. That the scepter would never depart from his tribe. It would come through the son of David whose eternal kingdom would never go away. It would come through the greater Solomon who had far greater wisdom than Solomon ever had. It would come through the greater temple. There was a greater presence on earth of God than the temple ever would. It would come through a greater sacrifice who died for the sins of the people far greater than any lamb or goat in the Old Testament ever could. It would come through a greater prophet who would bring a better word than any prophet could. It would come through a better king who would reign in righteousness far greater than David even ever could. This was the hope of the future and the welfare that God had planned for them. In the same way, though, their hope was in the future. Even now for us as Christians and Jesus has come, our hope is now in the future. Because our hope is in his return again. It's not in this Egypt. It's not in this Babylon. It's in a new heavens and a new earth when he comes back. And in that, ladies and gentlemen, he has promised to give us blessings and prosperity and welfare beyond our wildest dreams. Because in that day, there will be no more broken relationships. In that day, there will be no more sickness or COVID. There will be no more economic strains. There will be no injustice or strife. Jesus will eradicate all that. He will reign. There will be peace. 